Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host Kyle Fagala and this morning we have David Flat teaching on part three of the Attributes of God series and he's going to be talking about God's mercy and also God's grace. As I've said before, if you listen to this podcast regularly, David is, uh, he's the guy. He's the one that schedules all these classes and kind of behind the scenes organizes everything that happens in our class. And so it's always great to hear David uh, speak. He's the one that picked out this book and everything, so I'm sure he's going to do an excellent job. Uh, In our world, it was just Thanksgiving, so if you celebrate Thanksgiving with your family, I'm guessing you did. I'm going to assume that most people do that. Uh, I hope you had a great time. I just pray that everything was good in that time, uh, that the conversations were good and positive, and uh, that you didn't argue too much. Uh, Also last night, Alabama lost in football, so this is the first episode of this podcast where I can actually say those words, Alabama lost in football, so it feels really good to say that. Um, It's just a joke. Arkansas lost, so that's what I'm used to saying. Um, Anyway, so let's get on with this podcast. Uh, Again, this is Attributes of God Part 3 with David Flatt, talking about God's mercy and God's grace. All right, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. Got the Thanksgiving crowd, uh, so I know a lot of people are out of town, but I'm I'm thankful that you're here this morning, and we'll see if we can't um, learn a little bit this morning, maybe grow a little bit together. So, uh, any, some new faces, people visiting us this morning, glad you're here. My name's David Flatt. I help teach the class and uh, with a bunch of other people in here, so I'm, I'm thankful that you're here this morning. Hope that you had an awesome Thanksgiving. Um, if anyone is interested in writing those notes for Macon Hall, we need somebody that's going to write a, a notes to teachers about once every six weeks. So we're looking for one person from every class. Somebody wants to do that, just let me know. Okay, so we have been running through uh, this book called The Attributes of God by A.W. Tozer. So Tozer is a really influential uh, theologian in, you know, late last century. So I think he died like in the 80s. Um, but really a, a influential thinker on a, a lot of topics. And this maybe is uh, his most important book. He wrote a couple other books that are also really popular, kind of considered Christian classics. So we've been walking through the attributes of God. He covers 10 in this book. He actually wrote a, another book called the Attributes of God 2, where he covers 10 more attributes. Um, but the 10 in this book that we're covering is uh, Grant covered God's inf- God being infinite and immense. And then Scott covered God's goodness and justice last week. And this week, I'll cover God's mercifulness and His graciousness. So God's mercy and grace is what we're covering this week. Before we jump into that, though, I wanted to just make a few comments about Thanksgiving. I think Thanksgiving is becoming my favorite holiday. Um, I mean, everyone loves Christmas for all that it is. But I, I really love Thanksgiving because it's so simple, right? It's just the idea of you get with family, you have good food. And uh, I th- actually think there's a, a really important kind of theological, spiritual dimension uh, to Thanksgiving. And I think we just miss it so much. I want to take maybe a few minutes just to talk about that. And, of course, it's the idea of giving thanks. And I think that's a Christian discipline, to be thankful. In some ways, I think the difference in a Christian view of the world <coughs> versus kind of our common secular culture view of the world is the difference in seeing the, seeing the good in the world and being thankful for it versus seeing the bad in the world and being outraged by it, right? And I, I really think that's a distinction between seeing the world from a Christian worldview and seeing it the way that our culture sees it. So I just think it's such a neat holiday to say, of course we're thankful every day, but hey, we're going to stop once a year. We're going to have our plenty around the table. We're going to eat uh, so much, really more than we need because we're so blessed, and we're just going to be thankful. And uh, I just think that's special. I hope that you had a little time to reflect on all the good things that are in your life. Of course, in all of our lives, there's things that we wish are different. And in certain seasons of life, there's going to be more that we wish was different. But I think uh, there's always things 
uh, to be thankful for. So here is the first uh, proclamation of Thanksgiving. So this is the first presidential proclamation in the first term of the first president of America. And I'm not saying uh, that Washington is a perfect man by any means, but I think he was uh, a really remarkable man. And here's what he said about what Thanksgiving should be. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. And so that's hopefully, I hope you got a little chance between the feast and the football and family that you either like or maybe, you know, the uncle that says kind of weird things or whatever. In between all that, I hope that you had a little time to think, man, God has been good to us in so many ways. And um, I just think that's special. So I hope that you had a chance to do that. What I want to do today is cover God's mercy and God's grace. And I kind of want to do it in three stages here. The first thing I want to do is really what Scott and Grant have already done, uh, but I just kind of want to set the stage for the rest of my conversation. A topic of, is this even a worthy endeavor? Like, should we spend five weeks studying God's character? What is God about? Is that, is that relevant, or should we just study how to be, right? So that would be an, a different way to do Sunday school, would be to talk about, well, let's just talk about how we should behave, what we should do, what we should think, how we could you know, live out the Christian life, which, of course, we do that sometimes in here. But I, I think it's a worthy endeavor to pause and say, who is God? What is God like? And so I want to try to make a case for why that being is important. The second thing I want to do is to understand what grace and mercy are in relation to who God is. Okay, so I think if we don't understand God's nature, we're not going to understand his attributes of mercy and grace. So we'll kind of set the stage there. And then finally, I want to actually discuss what mercy is and what grace is. And, um, and then talk about how those flow out of God and his nature. So we'll go in three steps. Why knowing God matters. Next, we'll talk about understanding grace and mercy. And then finally, we'll talk about the mercy and graciousness of God. All right, why knowing God matters? So I'm going to say good biblical theology always starts with God. In fact, I would suggest that all great thinking always starts with God. So if you want to think about cultural matters, it starts with knowing who God is and His plans for civilization and how we live in community together. If you want to talk about marriage, if you talk about family, if you want to talk about parenting, if you talk about money, all great thinking starts with the character of God and then understanding how we as His creatures relate to Him. Right? So that's, the Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to think well about all these topics, it starts with God. What's difficult, though, is it's so easy to get kind of turned around when we think about God. It's so easy to, um, you know, heresy is tempting, right? There's been a lot of people, including ourselves at different seasons in life, who have thought things about God that weren't exactly right. And if we're not really sharp in our thinking about God, it doesn't mean we're not a Christian. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that we don't you know, receive His blessings of grace and mercy if we don't properly understand them. But we'll be living out something less than truly knowing God if we're not thinking about God well. So that's part of why coming to church and reading your Bible and coming to Sunday school class and living in Christian relationships is so important. So hopefully there's sanctification occurring here. We know God more now than we did when we began our Christian journey. <clears throat> so to that end... I want to suggest that all theological thinking begins with God. If we don't understand God, we will struggle to understand the downstream questions about who we are and how we relate to Him. So I would suggest, you know, 
there's obviously a lot of great things going on in the world right now. There's obviously a lot of confusion and kind of weird, crazy, unexpected things going on in the world right now. I would suggest that a lot of our confusion and trouble is because we're trying to answer these downstream questions. Who we are, if we're, if we're even thinking Christianly, how we relate to God, but then how we interact with each other, um, what, it, what is moral, what is immoral, how should we handle our money, what, should you be, what is the vision of a good life. We're trying to answer all those questions without understanding the foundational question of, of who is God and how do we relate to Him. So Grant gave the, the metaphor, I guess, a couple weeks ago of a house. Right? And so we spend all our time worrying about uh, where to put the windows, where to put the door, where the bricks go, where the mortar goes. Uh, but, but the truth is, if your foundation is, is jacked up, then none of that matters. And so I think a lot of our confusion is we're trying to answer, we're trying to argue about should there be two or three windows in the master bedroom, so to speak, and there's like you know, huge cracks in the foundation. So really that's what this five weeks is about, is let's get the foundation right, and then from that we can build up really important ideas about how to live out the Christian life. The second thing I want to point I want to make in this slide is a, is a quote from the early in the book that Tozer gives. He says, an attribute is something God is, not something God has. So that sounds like a weird sentence, right? We think of attributes. I think, you know, I've got kind of short legs. I've got brown hair. I've got green eyes. You know, those are my attributes. Those are things that I have. But, but for God, remember, God is the greatest possible being. So Grant talked about how God exists. He, he is immense. He's infinite, okay? So an attribute to God is who he is. It's what flows out of him. So think about goodness. Is something... Is, is something good? Do we define good and then we understand that that's who God is? Well, no, it's the other way around. God exists and what God is is good, right? So out of God flows his essence, his goodness, his attributes. So goodness is not something that God has. It's who God is. And so today we're going to talk about mercy and grace. And so those are not things that God has. God doesn't have mercy and grace. God is mercy and grace. We define a correct definition of mercy and grace flows from defining who God is, right? So God defines those terms because those, those ideas are grounded in Him. Here's the book, The Attributes of God. I have never read this book before this series. I'd really recommend it. I think it's excellent, and uh, I think it's helped me understand God more. Okay, so Charles Spurgeon, he's a, one of the five or six guys I, I'm always going to quote here there when I, I get a chance to, to speak. So some people say that he's called like the Prince of Preachers. Apparently in the 19th century, this guy was preaching in London, really kind of before the era of the megachurch. You know, for most of Christian history, churches were like house churches, 30, 40 people. This guy at a church in London had 2,000 people would come here and preach. Apparently this guy could just paint, paint a picture with words. It was unbelievable. It's really, you know, a... a <clears throat> culture-changing preacher. A lot of the First Great Awakening came from his preaching and people who followed him and started their own churches. But anyway, I think this quote, you can tell he's good with words when you just like read how he says this, but listen to this quote. I think it's, this is true. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the, the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. So what Spurgeon is saying here is, man, David, I know you are like obsessed with how bad Tennessee is at football right now, and you're thinking about that almost constantly. Who's our next coach going to be? Or um, like I've got a fantasy football league. My Highland Fantasy Football League is like over. It's been a bit rough season. But in another league, I've got a chance to make the playoffs, and so we need to win today. I'm thinking about that a lot. But that like 
of course this makes sense. We all know this, but I think it, sometimes when we say out loud what's obvious, all the time I'm spending thinking about that is just, just like sand on the seashore just pales in comparison to the opportunity we have to think about God and His immensity and His grace and His mercy. And that's the greatest thing. So uh, Spurgeon said, It's the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God. There's nothing greater to think about than God. And so that's what we're trying to do for five weeks, and I think it's a worthy cause. Here is Paul writing to the Ephesians. He says basically the same thing that Spurgeon says. He's praying for the Ephesians. He's praying for the church at Ephesus, and he says, "I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him." So he prays that the Christians in Ephesus can have a revelation to know God, and then once they know God, they'll have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. So if you, know, if you know God, your eyes are enlightened, you know the hope to which He's called you, and the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Right? So Paul wants the church in Ephesus to know God so that they'll know all that God has given them. I think this is a powerful quote. It's also... Um, from, from Tozer, and I want to spend a couple of minutes on this. Here's a quote. One of the biggest problems of the church is the loss of the proper concept of what God is like. One of the biggest problems in the church is the loss of the proper concept of what God is like. So, of course, Tozer is kind of a generation before us, but I think that this can be said for the Western church today, um, the, uh, the, the church in America. I think we struggle with this. So you think about two series ago, we did the false doctrine series, right? We talked about things that, you know, maybe in our... In our era, we get kind of confused as a church. We think about in kind of confusing ways. And we identified three. We could, I mean, we could have gone on and on. We had identified three different false doctrines that we thought were especially powerful. One was the political gospel. Uh, the next was the health and wealth gospel. And the third was the social justice gospel. Remember, we said that the, the political gospel, really, the, the idea was the ultimate goal of Christianity was to make America strong, powerful, and wholesome. We said the health and wealth gospel viewed God as his primary role in the world was to make us healthy and wealthy. And we said the social justice gospel, the primary view of Christianity in that, th- in that sense, was to make the world, um, to relieve the world of suffering and to make the world equal, right? To make things fair. And we talked about how all of those maybe had grains of truth in them, but they, they miss the bigger picture of who God is. And so I would contend that in all three of those false gospels we talked about, the ultimate problem is a, a failure to recognize who God is. And so if you have a church that, that doesn't have a proper concept of God, you're going to have a church that has improper teaching about what God wants for us in the Christian life. So if you miss out on, on understanding God's immensity that Grant talked about or God's justice that Scott talked about, you're going to miss out on understanding your relationship to an immense God or your standing before God who will judge based on His justice. And so today, when we talk about mercy and grace, I would contend that if we don't understand God as a merciful and gracious God, we're going to have a false picture of our relationship to Him. It's going to be really easy to kind of follow in this, this idea of not having a relationship with God, being overjudged by God, of God being harsh with us. And so all false doctrines are going to arise from a false concept of, of what God is like. Okay, so let's talk for a minute. Well, I want to have a discussion question. How does knowing God help us think and live the Christian life? How does knowing about God help us think and live the Christian life? 
context for whom you're serving. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't really understand who God is, it's kind of hard. Your, your, your life can become a little directionalist, I guess, if, yeah. you're, if you're serving kind of some vague directions of what we imagine God might be or what we want him to be versus if we've taken the time to think about who he is. Yeah, that's excellent. So it's hard to follow what you don't know or who you don't know. Yeah, that's a great point. <coughs> you know, Christian life you know, begins in a relationship, I guess. Is the idea there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, what, what you do flows out of who you love. That's good. What you do flows out of who you love. There's a sense of, not that we have lists to follow, but there is a how-to. <coughs> We look at God to see how to live a Christian life. Mm-hmm. We look at how God treats us and how God has treated humanity. That's how we learn how to treat others. Mm, that's good. That's good. Right? So it's like a standard. We kind of understand what who God is and we respond from there. Okay. So the second thing we would accomplish is we want to understand grace and mercy. So we kind of want to understand grace and mercy as kind of abstract concepts, but first I want to understand how grace and mercy relate to God himself. So if we don't understand God, we're going to miss the point. So what I, what I would say is that divine mercy and grace, divine mercy and grace is based on the righteousness of God. Okay, so this, obviously there's a typo here, but divine mercy and grace is based on the righteousness of God. So what does righteousness mean? So righteousness means to be true, right? To be like an arrow. So if, if you're righteous, you're going to you flow straight. It's going to be who you are. So if you're righteous towards your character, you're going to do what's consistent with your character. And so the idea of the righteousness of God is a huge biblical concept because if, if we understand what God is like, who God is, is the greatest possible being, then his behavior and his love towards us is going to flow out of all that. So if God was not righteous, then it would be possible for him to do things that were not consistent with his character. right? So if God is all good but he wasn't all righteous, then he would be good most of the time, but sometimes he might not be good, right? But, but thankfully, God is righteous, so he's going to behave in ways that are consistent with his character. Okay, so let's just do a little, a few definitions here. The book says you have to be a professional theologian to understand the difference in mercy and grace. Thankfully, we have a professional theologian in our class. So I don't know if you guys remember, but a couple weeks ago, Eric was preaching, right? And he said, um, mercy is getting what you, I'm sorry, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? So let's let's unpack that a little bit. But I I think there are distinctions between mercy and grace. And I I think it's important to understand kind of how those play out. So mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it is within one's power to punish or harm. Right? So if you have the power or right even to punish someone, but you don't deliver that punishment towards them, that's, that's mercy. So you may have seen in a movie or someone, uh, a movie or something, someone appeals to the mercy of the court. Like, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. What is that person saying? The person saying, I deserve to be punished. I'm asking you to not punish me. Right? I'm asking you to not give me what I deserve. That's mercy. So grace is in contrast to mercy. Obviously, they're related. But grace is the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. So grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting free, unmerited gifts, right? So unmerited means you haven't done anything to earn it. It's getting a gift that you don't deserve. So 
maybe it's because I, I am a parent, so that's a, a lot of what I do is think about my kids. Or maybe it's because God is our Father. But I think as we talk about the attributes of God, it's helpful to put them in context of parenting, right? So there are certainly have been times where Crawford deserved to be punished, and I didn't punish him, right? Maybe sometimes because I'm being a lazy parent, it's easier not to. But I think most of the time, because I love him, right? And so if he messes up and he uh, recognizes his mistake, and if it's not too big of a mistake, I might take that as an opportunity to, to teach him, but then you know, we're not going to do this, this huge grounding or huge spanking or timeout or whatever because I, I deliver mercy to him. Even though he deserves to be punished, I don't punish him. Even easier to understand is grace, right? So I think about the way like Lauren interacts with our kids, the way, like the effort and the love and the sacrifice that engulfs her life in, in gifts towards our children is just, there's nothing that Allie and Crawford could ever do to deserve to be loved by someone like that, right? To, to get up when she's exhausted, to feed them, to change it, like all that, that just gracious love that they didn't deserve. That's, that's really like defines the interaction between a parent and, and child, right? It's just unmerited love. There's nothing you did but be born to be loved. And in fact, you can't love me back. You can't, you know, for the first six months or you can't even say anything but i'm just gonna love you just because there's nothing this child did to be loved except be born and so that's really how god interacts with us as his children god gives us blessings and grace that we don't deserve okay so mercy is not getting what we do deserve grace is getting what we don't deserve so francis schaefer is, is uh one of the greatest thinkers i think in the, the past 100 150 years of, of christian history but he's got this quote and i just kind of want to break it down a little bit so schaefer says if i had one hour with every man i would spend the first 45 minutes talking to them about god's law and the last 15 minutes talking about his great salvation so that's interesting right it, it's that's not a quote that i would say i think maybe his ratio is a little off right and we can kind of quibble about, about that what I want to talk to you, though, is not necessarily the ratio, but his point, right? So what's his point? His point is that God's great salvation doesn't make any sense at all without seeing it in context with God's great law. So what is God's great salvation? God's great salvation is derived from his character. It's his grace and mercy that he extends to sinners. That's God's great salvation. Well, what is God's great law? Well, God's great law is also derived from his character, right? It's the justice that Scott talked about last week and the holiness that we'll talk about in a few other weeks. It's, that, it's the manifestation of those two things poured out into his law. It's God's standard for what meets his holiness and what can be in his presence, right? So if you live in a culture like the American church does, that we're so, well, there's so much cultural pressure to reduce and diminish God's justice and God's holiness, right? So in exchange, we emphasize God's grace and mercy, which is good to emphasize God's grace and mercy, but it doesn't make any sense, right? So if you're preaching to a people that don't understand God's um, justice and God's holiness, then, then they have no idea why they would ever need grace or mercy, right? So if, you don't, if, if there's no law that you stand judged by, if there's no, nothing that you need salvation from, why would you be interested in being saved, right? So a, a dude walking on dry land is not interested in a life preserver. It seems excessive. Like, what do I need, what do I need salvation from? So a proper understanding of grace and mercy, the good news of the gospel, can't be even heard, much less accepted or felt, 
before you have a deep understanding of God's justice and God's holiness, God's law. So Schaefer's point was we live in a kind of a post-Christian, secular, Western culture, and because our culture is so distorted and imbalanced, these two ideas, that he would want to overemphasize the first idea and uh, maybe just come at the very end with, with the idea of salvation. Again, I don't know exactly, I guess it depends on who you're talking to, how much time you would spend on each. I think his point's well taken, though, that salvation makes very little sense without an understanding of God's holiness and God's justice. Okay, so this is like maybe for my favorite passage of the Bible, the kind of the middle of Romans 3. And so um, <clears throat> Paul's talking, like Romans 3.21 is for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right, so we're all sinners. Then 22, and are justified freely by His grace. Right, so we're sinners, we're saved. Verse 25 talks about how Jesus dies on the cross as a propitiation, which is like a, a, a Bible word for in our place. So Jesus dies in our place by the shedding of his blood. So that's the context here. Paul's talking about Jesus on the cross in our place bleeding for us. He, says, he said that Jesus did that to show his righteousness. Remember, righteousness means trueness, faithfulness to his character. At the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So why did, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, he died on the cross because he, he loves you, but he died on the cross to preserve God's righteousness. Right? So if God's going to be righteous, what is he righteous to? He's righteous to his own character. Right? He's righteous to who he, who he exists in his being, which includes holiness and justice mercy and grace, right? And so that's, that's the tension here that Jesus is preserving in the cross. I mean, Paul basically says exactly that. Paul says, Jesus dies to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. There's the justice of God. Does, does God punish sin? Yes. Like, look at the cross, right? That is God's just punishment for sin. But he's also the justifier. What does it mean to be the justifier? It means to count one righteous, to declare us free, to forgive us. So in the cross, Jesus maintains the righteousness of God by exemplifying both God's justice and his role as the forgiver for those who have faith in Jesus. Right? So that's how mercy and grace interact with, with um, the person of God because they flow from the character of God. And then here's a last slide for this section. But Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. Right? So if we have a low view of God, if we don't view God as holy, view God as set apart, view God as just, then we're going to totally miss how radical, how big, how undeserving we are of His mercy and His grace. Right? If we don't think that we stand in deserved punishment for our sins before God, then God's mercy makes no sense, right? Because what is mercy? It's not getting what you do deserve. But if you don't deserve to be punished for your sin, then mercy is meaningless, right? If we don't understand that, that we pale in comparison to the greatness of God and are deserving of nothing from Him, but our relationship to God is really what we can give to Him, then we're going to miss out on grace, right? Because what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve, Right? So if you, don't des if you think that you do deserve good things from God, if God's responsibility in life is to treat you like his pet, to keep you healthy and wealthy and comfortable, um, then you're going to totally miss out on grace. So God doesn't owe you anything. So what's so amazing about grace is we don't deserve it. 
Right? But if you have a low view of God and a high view of self, you're going to miss the whole gospel. You can't understand mercy or grace if you don't have a big view of God. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. How does misunderstanding God prevent us from understanding His attributes of mercy and grace? Maybe, maybe we come at the angle this way. Is it easy to misunderstand God, right? To think about God in a less than biblical way, to have a smaller picture of God? And if it is easy, why is that? We like to easily characterize, I mean, anybody. Mm-hmm. Not just God. I mean, sure. You like to pick up on a, a singular trait that overpowers and, and generalize from there. You know, you've got a picture. You know, someone has a picture of what a ball fan looks like, right? And so yeah. we can apply those characteristics to you without having to think about any, any more depth about you. Yeah. We do that with everything because it's easier and it, it assumes knowledge on our part, which we like. Yeah. I think we do the same thing with God. We take whatever trait we're most drawn to and kind of generalize out from there. That's good. <clears throat> I think Grant said one time that, that Christian ethics all starts with humility. I think that's pretty good. That if we have to first be willing to kind of lessen ourselves in our own eyes uh, to kind of understand the rest, right? So there's kind of a humility saying, like, maybe I don't understand everything. You know, maybe I don't know everything about other people, much less God. And uh, I think that's the beginning of Christian behavior. I don't think we think about God enough. Hmm. I think we think about other things. Yeah, I do that and, for and sure. The world is so full of other things that we fail to really think, stop, and think about God. Who is it that said, um, maybe it's in Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, but the, the devil is content to either have you think about him too much or not at all. And I think, I think there's some truth to that. I think in, in Western culture, in American culture, that's the devil's trick, right? To, the, don't think about me at all. Yeah, man. This is all, I'm loving that you're doing this one this week because so this past week at school before we broke for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. we uh, our teachers we all took a spiritual gift inventory, mm-hmm. and I recognize it because I've probably taken it six times in my life at this point. But you know, every time it kind of things kind of shift, but whatever. So teaching is always towards the top, which makes me feel good, like I picked the right job. But, but mercy had popped up on mine and was number two, like right up there with teaching, which blew wow. my mind because I mean. I've never even noticed it was on the assessment. So that says how high it is for me usually. So then I was like, what is this? Like, what in the world changed? So I'm going back and I'm looking at what I, what act, what things I rated. And all the mercy questions mm-hmm. were all about, you know, how do you, do you feel other people's pain? Do you, um, do you ache for people when they <coughs> Do you want to make that better even if you can or can't? Mm-hmm. And so then... When you started talking about mercy, and I thought about my discourse, like, man, that's what God's mercy is. Like, to me, mercy for God has always been, like, it's an action, right? It's a thing yeah. that happens. Like, because I need <clears throat> God, 
shows me mercy. But when I think about the like, well, why does God show me mercy? What about God mm-hmm. makes mercy something he wants to do? And I think about that depth of connection with me as a sinner and him watching me and feeling that level of connection. Like, that makes it so much more powerful. But that's not something I had taken time yeah. to think about. That's good. Like, so I think it's easy to look at the things God does and not think about the why and what it, what it is about that characteristic. So it all kind of plugs in there. So I don't want to pretend like I know biblical languages more than I do, but, but the word compassion and the word mercy have the same root. So mercy is, is like the, uh, the verb form of compassion. So it means like to compassionate, to extend compassion. We don't have an English word for that, but that's exactly what you're saying there is you feel compassion and then you act on it. That's mercy. You were going to say something, man. Yeah, I was just thinking of just ignorance and the, the idea of not knowing even what we don't know. Um, but for those that don't have a relationship with Christ, the ignorance that they have and not, not having a relationship mm-hmm. and just how to how do you help develop that with, with people. And then just how do we have a deeper relationship so we can understand even more. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah, ignorance is a powerful weapon, right? If you don't know, what is it? Uh, that just ridiculous quote by Donald Rumsfeld, like when he was Secretary of Defense, like, well, there's knowns and there's unknowns and there's unknown unknowns. You guys remember that? So that's, I mean, it's kind of what you're saying. Like, you don't, if you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, that, that Satan can certainly use that weapon. All right. Now, so in the third part, we're just talking about the mercy and graciousness of God. So I'm going to say from the fullness of God flows undeserved compassion, that's mercy, and unmerited favor, that's grace. And so where, where does this mercy, this undeserved compassion come from? Where does grace, this unmerited favor, comes from? I'm going to hit 10, and I think this is really important if we're going to understand God. It comes from the fullness of God, right? So out of God flow these attributes, okay? So God doesn't have undeserved compassion. He does not merely have unmerited favor. He is undeserved compassion and unmerited favor. He is mercy and grace. Okay, God's mercy. So I think this is kind of neat. I want to put maybe the next 10 minutes or so in the context of Christmas, okay? And, And Jesus, the incarnation and Jesus coming, what is that all about? So Tozer says, if God had not been merciful, there would have been no incarnation, no babe in the manger, no man on a cross, and no open tomb. So what in the world is he talking about? What in the world does the first Christmas have to do with God's mercy? <clears throat> well, let's, let's go back to Eric's definition, which I, I think is a great one. What does mercy mean? It means not getting what you deserve, right? So, so when mercy is extended to you, it's you're not getting what you do deserve. So what was the point of Jesus coming? The point of Jesus' coming was to extend mercy to sinners. So we as sinners, we stand rightfully in condemnation before God, right? That's a very un-postmodern thing to say, right? That's the kind of thing that, like, you get strange looks at at work if you say something like that. But the truth is, David Flatt, 32-year-old dad, kind of trying to struggle through, figure out the best way to, to live life. I'm really trying, but obviously mess up a lot. David Flatt deserves a holy God's condemnation. I deserve God's wrath for my sin. And the truth is, just like I deserve God's wrath, so do you, right? Why does that sound so weird? Well, it sounds weird because of ignorance, right? We don't 
understand God properly. We have a low view of God in our culture, a high view of man. But the truth is God is much bigger than we could ever view Him, and our sin makes us much lower. And so the truth is we deserve God's wrath, but God in His mercy created a way for us to be free of His wrath while preserving His righteousness, right? So an unrighteous God could just choose to not be wrathful, right? Could not punish sin. But God is righteous. He must punish sin. And so how does He elect to not extend His wrath to those who deserve it? Well, He sends a babe in a manger. And then He puts a man on a cross to die for our sins. And then that same man comes from an open tomb, right, defeating sin and death. So what was the purpose of the manger? The purpose of the manger was that Jesus came to live the life that you couldn't live, and then you die the death that we deserve to die to conquer the enemies that we could never conquer, sin and death and the resurrection, right? So that all who believed in Jesus could be justified in Him and, and be with God forever, right? That's the point of Christmas. And so God's mercy is seen in the manger, right? So as we kind of think about the, maybe our cultural character caricatures of Christmas, which are not all bad. I'm, I mean, I'm, a, I'm down with Frosty, and I even think Santa, there's some neat things about that with the kids. But I don't want us to miss that part of what's going on in the manger is the, manifesta- the manifestation, the expression, the compassionate activity of, of God. God is sh- extending His mercy by sending Jesus. So again, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. There's this caricature of of God, that the God in the Old Testament was vengeful and the God in the New Testament is merciful. So I think this is a good time to point out the word mercy is used four times more in the Old Testament than in the New Testament, right? So God did not, or Paul or the early church did not invent God's attribute of mercy. It's all over the Old Testament. Let's look at Lamentations. Anybody think Lamentation is a good mercy book? I mean, that's not, that's not the caricature for sure. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So why did Jesus come? Because of the Lord's great love. He did not choose to consume us. He extended compassion towards us. This is maybe the most famous mercy, mercy verse in the Bible. This is Psalms 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Right, that, that is the definition of mercy. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. Well, just to make the point again here, the idea of mercy presupposes sin and iniquities, Right? The, the, for mercy to exist, we have to deserve to be, pe- to be punished for our sins. He will not always chide us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor pay us according to our inequities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. So if you spent the first 45 minutes in Schaefer's analogy understanding who God is, doesn't that mean so much? Right? So if you understand yourself as a sinner who deserves wrath, and then you hear that God has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west, He's removed your transgressions, He loves you the same way that fathers love their children, He has compassion on those who fear Him, 
That's unbelievable. That's, I mean, that's life-changing stuff. Okay, so many view the God of the Bible as harsh and vengeful. Do you agree with this? Why or why not? Yeah, so I think the trick we play is we think God is harsh and vengeful because we have a high view of ourselves, right? So why would, I'm a good person, why would God judge me, right? In fact, I think if you're honest with, I know when I'm honest with myself, when I, maybe the kids go to bed and I'm laying in bed kind of thinking about things, I know, <laughs> like I'm not a good person, right? I'm just kind of trying to, to fake it through and, and do the best I can, but it's, it's, not, it's not good enough. And so if that's true, that, that I, I deserve justice, then I, th- I think the idea of accusing God and putting him on the stand saying, you're, you're vengeful because you want to judge me, I think that kind of di- disappears. Okay, I have a, a couple more points I want to make, so let's kind of press on here. <clears throat> God's grace. So here's a definition of God's grace. Grace is that in God which brings into favor one justly in disfavor. So right, these ideas of grace and justice are... are totally linked. They cannot be separated. Um, so if you're justly in disfavor and God brings you into favor, that's grace. That's grace. So God should not favor you, but he, but he chooses to. And again, I want to see this idea of grace in connection with the incarnation. So Jesus comes as a baby. We saw how that's merciful, right? That's God providing a path where he would no longer give us what we deserve. But it's also... I think even more clearly, it's graceful, right? God gave us what we didn't deserve. That's grace. God gave us forgiveness and love and the opportunity to be united in relationship with God, right? So why, why, did, all, why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came for a, a lot of reasons. I think you can answer this question in a lot of good ways. He came as an example. He came um, to, to fulfill the prophets. That's, that's something that the, the Bible says. He came... Um, as, as the Jewish Messiah, he came um, to redeem the world. But in, in a sense, maybe greater than all that, I think you could say Jesus came to fulfill the righteousness of God. For God to be true to his character, for God to be both a God who judges sin but extends mercy and grace to sinners, Jesus had to come, right? So, so part of what's going on in the manger is the gift of God that we didn't deserve of Jesus Christ and his salvation. And so John, maybe in the, one of like the most beautiful chapters of the Bible, John 1, John has this sentence. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So where does this grace come from? This incredible gift of salvation, of having our sins forgiven, of being in relationship with God. Where does that come from? It comes from the fullness of God. So what, what is John saying? He's saying God in his character, in his fullness, out of that flows grace. Not just grace. Grace upon grace. So this is like John's like almost awkwardly repeating himself, like free gift upon free gift. Like you don't have to say that twice, but it's like it's such a big deal. He like says, God's given you free gift upon free gift that you didn't deserve. Which brings us to our final question. We can be quick with this as we're wrapping up, but has anyone ever been gracious to you? So think about a time when someone gave you a gift that you didn't deserve. And then let's maybe try to put that in context with how that might impact how we see God's grace towards us. The first part, maybe no one's got a story like this, but it would be awesome if somebody could share a story where someone 
gave them something they didn't deserve. Uh, whenever I was at work mm -hmm. uh, this past week, um, sadly I work at McDonald's, uh, but um, a lady, I was taking her order and she gave me a $2 tip. Mm. And of course I didn't deserve that because I was just being myself and being polite, respectful, uh, and just being nice, I guess, to her while she ordered. And I was like, I, I didn't want to accept it. I mm -hmm. didn't want to accept the $2 because I, it wasn't in my nature, I guess you call it. And mostly, I mean, it didn't feel right. Um, but so I just I don't know I I took it just so um, I didn't even put it in my pocket I just put it in the in the drawer <laughs> and just like now it's an extra two dollars that we go count for money later but um, I just didn't deserve that. Dude, we could have a whole class on that story. That's in, uh, thanks for sharing. That's awesome. So sometimes we don't want to receive grace, right? There's, I mean, I think there's a huge pressure, like this feeling like I, God couldn't love me. Like God, if maybe you guys like me because you kind of have this picture of me, the Tennessee fan, you know, the whole bit like, but if you really knew me, like you wouldn't love me. And God knows me and he still wants to give me grace, right? And so we feel like we don't deserve it. And the truth is you're right. We don't deserve it. That's the whole, that's the whole point. Right? It's, it's unmerited favor. Man, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. All right, well, let's try to land here. I want to leave with one last quote. <clears throat> but the man who has an adequate conception of God will not only believe in the love of God, but also in the holiness of God. Who will not only believe in the mercy of God, but also in the justice of God. So here, here's my challenge, right? I think that we live in a world of pendulum thinking, right? We swing back and forth, and we correct the errors of last week with overcompensation this week. And one generation makes an error in one direction, and the next generation overcompensates in the other direction, right? And so I think in this room, we probably, including myself, have a tendency to be on one end of this pendulum or the other, right? It's so easy. In fact, it's comfortable. It makes us feel smart, like Scott was talking about, to, to emphasize and be kind of absorbed with the holiness of God and to, to judge the world and talk about how, I mean, it's Sodom and Gomorrah and it's all over and God's going to salt the earth and His righteousness. That's easy, right? It's also easy to talk about the love of God and just to be obsessed with God's, God loves you exactly where you are. He calls you to nothing different than what you've always done. He wants to embrace you and make you feel comfortable and happy, right? And that's, that's easy, right? But neither one of those is, is the complete picture, right? There's something a lot more beautiful going on in the being of God. And the truth is, it's the full manifestation of both of those things. It's not the like, cultural caricature of like an angry, vengeful God in His holiness. It's not the cultural caricature of like a, a hipster God, like just wanting to make everybody comfortable and easy. It's this caricature of real love that's willing to sacrifice and give you what you don't deserve and to withhold from you what you do deserve. 
to maintain his goodness and his holiness so that he's worthy of our worship. And so all of this comes together in the being of God and is manifested fully in the great work of Christ on the cross. Right? So why do we talk about the cross so much? Why do we look at the cross so much? Because in the cross, you see all of God. Right? You don't miss the holiness and justice of God. In fact, God hates your sin so much that he sent the second person of the Trinity to die and be murdered by his cre- creatures, his creation, to pay for your sin. But God loves you so much that he was willing to do it. Right? So we talk about the cross because we believe in God and we believe in the God of the Bible and all these attributes. And so we got four more to go. God's omnipresence, God's imminence, God's holiness, and God's perfection. And so I hope that you'll come back with us the next couple weeks as we kind of wrap up who is God and how we can worship and serve him. You pray with me? Dear God, we are so undeserving of your mercy, and we have fallen so short of being worthy of your grace. And we thank you so much that you've given it to us anyways. God, help us to live a life worthy of that calling. In your son's gracious name we pray. Amen. So I want to thank David for doing uh, just a fabulous job. This is, uh, I call this sort of David's wheelhouse, uh, basically talking about the gospel. I think David has studied that. You can obviously tell that he spent a lot of time thinking and, and reading and, and just speaking on this topic. So great job to David, um, as always. Next week we'll be back with Eric Gentry, who I always say he is a professional speaker. The rest of us are just doing it for fun. Uh, we're kind of weekend warriors, as it were. Um, and Eric always does, man, just an awesome job. Um, really looking forward to him speaking on two more attributes of God. And uh, we will learn that together Next Sunday as we get together, if you're in the area, you're in the Memphis area, somewhere around here, maybe you're visiting or passing through, uh, we are at Highland Church of Christ. It's on Houston Levy and uh, out here in Cordova. And we meet at 10 a.m. in the Bridge Builders classroom. We would love to have you join us. Or if you're just out there listening and, man, you're a thousand miles away, I think that's really awesome. Hope God blesses you this week. And we will see you next Sunday.